This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan. I want to thank everyone who is subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those of you who are sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're still seeing great growth, and so much of that is owed to you. Thank you. And don't forget to follow the link in the show notes to our new website, where you will get a regularly updated hub of episodes, blog posts, and links to various podcasting services and our Patreon page. This is our 15th episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. Today's episode, episode 49, is entitled The Last Anglo-Saxon King. I hope you enjoy the show. Earl Harold Godwinson read the writing on the wall. Heading into the Christmas court of 1065, he no doubt began to reflect on everything that had happened that year, culminating in the exile of his brother, Tostig. It was all tough to bear for Harold, as he'd always gotten along with Tostig. But when the curse at the Witton from his own brother's mouth had been hurled his way, though he remembered his blood instantly boiling, he also remembered being stunned and without reply for a moment. To Harold, that was the last thing on his mind, betraying his brother. They'd been through so much as a family that it was just a pathetic attempt at controlling the situation as far as he was concerned. But Harold was still speechless. On what grounds did Tostig base that on? If he remembered clearly, Harold thought, it wasn't Harold who brought an armed guard and stood by the rebels at Northampton who had killed two of Tostig's huscarls and stripped his treasury dry. It wasn't Harold who had ridden on Yorkshire, destroying much of Tostig's property and sources of wealth. It wasn't Harold who took the side of the rebels before demands were even issued. In fact, it was the Earl Edwin of Mercia who rode to his his own brother's side as the rebels put Morcar up for the earldom and outlawing Tostig in the north. Yeah, it was the it was Earl Edwin, son of Elfgar, the man who resented Tostig and the rest of the Godwinsons for years, ever since Tostig got the gig in Northumbria over himself. And who is at Edwin's side? None other than a contingent of Welshmen proving that the line of Elfgar, with or without King Griffith of Wales, still held tight bonds with the enemy across the dike. And to top it all off, everyone was by then aware that Harold himself was targeted by a surprise attack on his hunting lodge at Port Skewit back on August 24, 1065, led by Caradoc, son of Griffith ap Ruderk the son of South Wales, who fell at the hands of King Griffith ap Llewellyn of Dehybarth when Elfgar was assisting him. How could he not see that he wasn't the problem here? This seemed to him, Harold, to be a covert war against the House of Godwin. It made sense to him, especially considering the Godwinsons sat at the top of every earldom in England save one, Mercia. And yet Tostig accused Harold of treachery 
and plotting to oust him from an earldom. The only thing he could think of that would link him to any plot to overthrow Tostig was his recent marriage to Edwin's sister, the former wife of King Griffith and Queen of all Wales, Alditha, or Edith the Fair. But this was a marriage of politics and convenience. By removing Edith through the bindings of marriage, the line of Elfgar was essentially neutered of its direct connection to Wales, while also throwing a peace offering to the Earl of Mercia by connecting Edwin to Harold by family. To Harold, this was obvious, but the obvious isn't always obvious to the angry and betrayed. On October 27, 1065, Harold returned with a message that the rebels would gladly take this to civil war should Morcar, son of Elfgar and brother of Earl Edwin, not be accepted, and the Northumbrian adherence to the laws of Canute were reestablished. Which was just a formal way of saying that everything Tostig had implemented was officially in the eyes of the king null and void. Albeit furious, King Edward and the Witan finally conceded, as we talked about in last week's episode, they conceded their demands, and by November 1st, 1065, Harold heard news of his brother, sending his family to Flanders in exile. Shortly thereafter, Tostig was reported being seen there as well. By late November 1065, Harold heard word of King Edward, aged 63 years at this point, was beginning to fail in his health. Some would later claim that it was, as Peter Rex describes it, quote, a sickness of the mind, end quote. Rex says that Edward, quote, was plunged into deep sorrow, complaining to God in his prayers at being deprived of his men's obedience and calling down God's vengeance upon them. No doubt he did mourn the loss of Tostig and was deeply unhappy and frustrated, end quote. But, as Rex points out, this isn't exactly the most trustworthy of accounts of the king's sickness. See, this is only found in the Vita Edwardi's a manuscript, if you'll remember, that was later commissioned by Queen Edith, Edward's wife, herself. And what better way to turn her husband's intentions and compassion toward her own house, the house of Godwin, than to describe him as simply heartsick over the negative turn of fortune of her older brother Tostig. Edith wasn't stupid either. She knew exactly what happened to queens without a king, so her anxiety was a bit high, no doubt, too. By December 28, 1065, Edward's feet were icy cold, and he had become increasingly unreachable, you could say. He was sleeping more and more, and his breathing became shallower and shallower, complete with deep gasps, all signs of what historians chalk up to a serious case of pneumonia. Throw in the fact that it was England in December and Edward lived in one of those drafty homes prevalent from the peasantry all the way up to the highest nobility and, well, he was 63 years old, so there's a lot working against the old king at this point. And on this day, Edward was unable to even witness the consecration of his and Queen Edith's pet project all these years, the stunning, even to this day, Abbey at Westminster. As the new year approached, Edward and all around him could clearly read the more writing on the wall. 
Edward called his wife, of course, to his bedside, though she is said to have been there almost constantly, warming his feet with her own hands and sitting nearby. To join her, though, he also called to his bedchambers Earl Harold Godwinson, the king's steward, Robert Fitzweimark. If you remember, we discussed surnames on the podcast previously, and Fitz was a Norman surname, leading us to believe pretty confidently that Edward Stewart, after all these years, remained a Norman one. And finally, the third, Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury. The Witton, even before Edward's death, had confirmed, though, Earl Harold as king. Now, Edgar Etheling wasn't exactly cast completely to the side, but he was still too young to take the throne, and there were just no plans that we know of to dispose of him. The English, it seems, felt it prudent to have as many insurance policies applied to the crown as possible. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states, quote, The wise king did entrust his kingdom to the man of high rank to herald himself, the noble earl, who ever faithfully obeyed his noble lord in words and deeds, end quote. Apparently, Edward whispered his consent to Harold's assumption of the crown, if anything, for lack of other options. Another chronicler stated, quote, Earl Harold succeeded to the kingdom as the king granted it to him, and he was elected thereto. End quote. The Vita Edwardi contributed to the story of English succession in 1066, and specifically the fate of Queen Edith, by saying the following, quote, I commend this woman, this is actually Edward speaking, I should say, I commend this woman Edith and all the kingdom to your protection, speaking to Harold. Serve and honor her with faithful obedience as your lady and sister, which she is, and do not despoil her as long as she lives, of any due honor got from me. End quote. So, to me, what's interesting about this is that it could be read as a metaphor for how Harold should treat Edward's kingdom as a sister, something to be honored and cherished and not forsaken. So to give credit where it's due, I took these quotes from Peter Rex's book, Edward the Confessor, by the way. Now, with the kingdom squared away, it seemed that King Edward couldn't hang on any longer, and he eventually fell into a deep sleep on January 2nd, 1066. He most likely died overnight between January 4th and January 5th, 1066. As it was entirely foreseeable, Plans were most certainly already made, and that's why I am inclined to brush aside the criticism that Harold gets for how quickly he was crowned. I've read so many things about people finding it very suspicious that Harold took the crown so quickly. However, I mean, again, it's not like they didn't have a month or so to iron out the wrinkles of succession. I don't know. I'm always open to being corrected, but I just don't buy the criticisms Harold received about doing it too quickly. Edward was dead, and Harold knew two things for certain. One, his brother was an exiled earl. And exiled earls don't exactly stay exiled for long in 11th century England. And two, William's intentions for England, as well as what the Normans are capable of, Harold knew all too well. So it was on January 6, 1066, 
Edward was laid to rest at the now consecrated and completed Westminster Abbey. That same day, Earl, Earl Harold Godwinson was crowned king, again having gotten the blessing of his king and won the election in the Witton. The E Chronicles of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles says the following of the succession. Harold Godwinson, quote, succeeded to the kingdom of the England just as the king granted it to him, and also men chose him for it, end quote. This bolsters the claims that Harold was the right man to wear the crown, while also negating any claims that Duke William claimed to have. Mark Morris writes, quote, John of Worcester, writing several decades later, says that Harold, whom the king had chosen before his demise as successor to the kingdom, was elected by all the principal men of England to the dignity of the kingship. End quote. More evidence, despite what happens later this year, and despite what Norman chroniclers will say in the coming decades, it sounds like an overwhelming majority of scribes of the time truly believe that Harold Godwinson was given the crown. Peter Rex even says, quote, Even William of Poitiers was forced to admit that Harold had been bequeathed the, tr- the throne, end quote. And historian Ian Walker in his book, Harold, the last Anglo-Saxon king, of which I get the name for this episode from, points out something curious that I find too good not to bring up here regarding the Norman propaganda machine. Walker's describing the myriad of bishops, archbishops, abbots, and earls at the bedside of Edward as he gasped his last breaths, along with Queen Edith, Earl Harold Godwinson, and Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury. And there is one glaringly obvious person who's missing. Had Duke William truly been named heir to the throne of England, there would be no question as to whether he would have have at the very least sent a representative of the Norman court until he, he himself could arrive. Yet Walker writes, quote, It's clear that no representative of Duke William arrived to push his claim to the throne at this time. This may be a result of the swiftness of Edward's decline from being stricken with illness in November of 1065 to his death on January 5th to 6th, 1066. William of Poitiers speaks of the report of Edward's uh, death coming unexpectedly to Normandy, which rather casts doubt on his earlier statement that Edward was was severely ill in 1064 and so sent Harold to Normandy to confirm William's succession to the throne. If Edward had been ill, then surely William would have expected his death at any time thereafter and would have had a representative in attendance at the court at this time. End quote. Kudos to Walker for that idea. And we're expected to just swallow hook, line, and sinker the idea that Duke William a duke promised the throne of a foreign kingdom, for goodness sakes, didn't have his own representative at Edward's court to ensure his succession would be honored? I mean, the man was 63 years old. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just way off base, but I think William's claim is just garbage. Without a representative in that court, William was running the risk of some powerful noblemen swooping in and claiming the crown for himself, like say, Harold Godwinson. That is exactly what happened, as we know. 
Edward lay dying with an heir not yet old enough to be the king. The Witton votes Harold Godwinson as king as soon as Edward passes away and stop. That point right there was when the Norman chroniclers would have been Twitter bombing like crazy, demanding to talk to the Anglo-Saxon manager. There would have been no end to the outrage had William's claim been legitimate and widely accepted across Normandy and England. I highly doubt that cheerleaders and groupies like William of Poitiers would have passed up this opportunity to once and for all bury the legacy of Harold Godwinson for the treachery of stealing William's crown had Harold Godwinson actually stolen William's crown. See? Sure, there were some character assassinations by future scribes against Harold, but nothing compared to the scenario that Harold actually stole the crown. Okay, the horse is dead here, I get it. And I'm just one opinion. So if you disagree, that is, if you feel that Duke William had a legitimate claim on the throne of England in 1066, then I'm all ears. I really am. Let's talk about it on Facebook or Twitter. One thing that doesn't change is that Harold Godwinson was King Harold II of England as of January 6th, 1066. And think about it. With the exception of the years 1016 to 1042, with the reigns of Canute, Harold Harefoot, and Hartha Canute, we have the first non-House of Wessex king since before Alfred. Harold Godwinson officially fulfills his father's mission, but Godwin's mission probably never intended the first Godwin on the throne would be the last Anglo-Saxon king, like, forever. But something curious does still lend credence to the fact that King Harold knew well William's intentions on England, justified or not, because William of Poitiers reports spies enlisted by Harold were seen coming in and out of Normandy with regularity. How he knew this, I have no idea. Again, William of Poitiers was a fanboy of William's if there ever was one, so it could be a little chicanery on his part, but it's still pretty feasible. Harold knew William's intentions. Again, he'd been there. And Harold knew the capabilities, seeing it firsthand, of the Norman military machine. So while Harold's spies were supposedly busy across the channel, reports of Harold heading to York pop up and disappear just as quickly as they came. No one knows the exact nature of his visit farther north than just about every English king dared to travel. But look at the lay of the land for a moment. Harold had Earl Edwin in Mercia, who aided the Northumbrian rebels in their bid to get his brother, Morcar, promoted to the role of Earl there. York was the traditional seat of Northumbrian power, as well as the home of his brother Tostig, the former Earl of Northumbria. And don't forget, King Harold II here, simply by being crowned, elevated Edwin and Morcar's sister, Edith the Fair, to queen. Queen of England. There's a lot going on there. Like, a lot. So my best guess is that Harold went north, bravely, to show his solidarity with the Northumbrians, as well as to reinforce his relationships with his earls of Mercia and Northumbria. But he returns to London in time for Easter 1066, and a very, very rare event. In fact, it's an event that only occurs once every 75 to 76 years. Of course, they don't know that, though. From some of the deepest 
reaches of outer space, a place that King Harold and all in the 11th century who witnessed it couldn't even pretend to fathom, came careening at a blistering 2,000 miles per hour, or nine-tenths of a kilometer per second, toward the center of the solar system. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicles reported, quote, Throughout all of England, a portent such as men had never seen before was seen in the heavens. End quote. That sentiment is echoed when William of Jumiege uses the same word, portent, in his writing of the event, saying, quote, Many people said that it pretended a change in some kingdom. End quote. Now, William of Jumiege, it's worth remembering, was a contemporary of the events of 1066. In fact, he was an acquaintance, at some level, of Duke William's. So it's interesting that two major chroniclers of the time, one on each side of the channel, documented the same occurrence and even interpreted it similarly, though the Anglo-Saxon chronicles were written year by year, whereas William of Jumiege was written a couple years after this, and after 1066. Either way, this comet was witnessed by an enormous number of people across the Northern Hemisphere, and almost instantly, it became an integral part of the lore surrounding Duke William's eventual conquest of England, so much so that it even found itself a strip of fabric on the Bayou Tapestry, complete with a fiery tail trailing it and people pointing up to it in the sky. Easter must have been a bit tense, I'm not going to lie. The English were no strangers to comets, mind you. One of the most revered men of what's called the Dark Ages, so-called because of its perceived abyss of scientific inquiry and innovation throughout Europe, from the fall of Rome in the 450s to the First Crusades, was the Venerable Bede. Bede goes way back, long before this podcast began its narrative, so far back, in fact, that there was no kingdom of the Angles and Saxons to speak of. Bede was a Benedictine monk at a monastery in Jaro, which is today along the River Tyne in Newcastle. Go Magpies! However, at this point, at this time, it was part of the kingdom of Northumbria. That's right, kingdom of Northumbria. Now, Bede is just one example that I'm learning in my studies that throws a middle finger up to those who find absolutely nothing of note in the scientific and cultural advancements of early medieval Europe. Bede wrote a lot, even getting credit for beginning what became known as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles that we mention here on the podcast all the time. But in his book, On the Nature of Things, he wrote of a, quote, star with flames like hair. They are born suddenly, portending a change of royal power, or plague, or wars, or winds, or heat. End quote. His description of it being a star with flames like hair is pretty telling. To the casual observer, it kind of looks like a white toothpick, but to someone looking at it closely, to the point of staring intently enough to see its tail as a moving piece of the whole, well, to me, that's some pretty high level of intelligence. Uh, okay, so it's a stretch to say that full-on science was happening in Europe, or in this case England, during the so-called Dark Ages, but the most basic level of astrophysics and astronomy, really science in general, is simple observation, is it not? Just ask Neil deGrasse Tyson. Looking up, he says, 
can be the first step. Though Bede's observation don't exactly belong in Scientific American, he was looking up. Okay, so I'm trying here, folks. I'm trying. All right, well, Bede had a better idea than the Scandinavians at the time. Yeah, Scandinavians believed that Odin had fought and killed Emir. Afterward, Odin used the various parts of Emir's corpse to create Earth itself, with Emir's skull being the sky. To them, comets, like the one seen in 1066, were simply parts of Emir's skull chipping off and disintegrating in the upper fires of the sky. So yeah, I suppose when you compare that to the Islamic world, the Dark Ages seems pretty dark, but Bede, among others, were little candle flickers around Europe, keeping the dark at bay. But Bede wasn't the only one. In 975, after two decades of tranquility under the reign of Edgar the Peaceful, a comet was reported in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, reporting that changes were in store for the kingdom. Shortly afterward, King Edgar died. His young Joffrey-esque son took over for a few years before a young Ethelred finagled his way onto the throne, and the rest is, well, not only history, as they say, but also on this podcast. So I encourage those who are joining us for the first time to head back and listen from the first episode to get the full context of this comment's portent. In addition to this, there are reports of a comet over England in 989 and 990, and the Battle of Malden in 991 signaled a change in tone for the Scandinavians toward England. And it's interesting because it was also reported elsewhere in the world, both corroborating the other. In the Annals of Sund, a Chinese text at this time, it's reported that a comet appeared then as well. So what's the relationship between the comet that supposedly pretended the coming Danish conquest of England in 989-990 and the comet that supposedly pretended the coming Norman conquest of England? Well, they were both the same comet, according to the astronomical studies across the world. And this comet wasn't named until roughly six centuries into their future by an Englishman named Edmund Halley. So yeah, the collapse of Anglo-Saxon England was twice signaled by the most famous comet of them all, Halley's Comet. And it disappeared within a matter of days, but I urge no one to take this for granted. As I approached this podcast, I told myself not to dismiss the folklore and non-scientific truths of the people I will study. Why? Because regardless of the truth, what we know today, what they believed shaped who they were and the decisions they made. Mythology, folklore, old wives' tales, pseudoscience, Aristotelian science, alchemy, faith systems, all of these structured these people's daily lives and they must be accounted for and taken seriously when analyzing who these people were and why they did what they did when they did it. And comets, like everything else in a world where humans still had a very little control over their daily lives, these were no small matter. With this heavenly signal of change, England must have been on its last nerve. But Normandy was clearly seeing things differently. It's said that Duke William's youthful temper flared to solar levels when he heard of what he deemed to be Harold's treachery. Again, we only know of Harold's supposed oath to William, 
from Norman accounts, so there's no telling if it was true or not. But William thought it was true, so as far as he was concerned, it was true, period. And William decided to rein in his, you know, quote-unquote vassal, Earl Harold, and so William prepared his duchy for war. Normandy had pretty much by the mid-11th century sworn off naval fleets and whatnot for the continental affects, such as marching armies and so on. In fact, as we've mentioned on the show already, Normans stood apart from their peers in land-based warfare by mixing swords and spears with the traditional Scandinavian battle axe. But they absolutely excelled in cavalry warfare. Cavalry warfare, in fact, one could say, was a bit of a trademark of theirs, and it had already been used to stunning efficacy in southern Italy, as we know. Normans, by this time, had all but cast off their Viking ancestry and become fully continental. One would say French. So, when in 1066, Duke William called for an invasion of England, many of his noblemen were shocked, even incredulous. Was it laughable? He was a descendant of Rollo, for sure, but to pretend he was Rollo was a completely different matter. William ordered a fleet to be constructed in late winter of 1066, much to his duchy's consternation, and no doubt amusement. Mark Morris has it that it wasn't just about feasibility of the operations related to a naval-based invasion. There was, he says, quote, in addition, the question of obligation, end quote. Hmm. The chronicler Wace mentions a fear that had developed in the Norman psyche during the previous 150 years or so, centering around a fear of the sea, which just goes to show how deeply rooted the Norman sense of acceptance in France went. He said Normans felt that they were, quote, not bound to serve beyond, end quote, the coasts of Normandy. Morris follows Wace's thoughts up to a poignant question. He asks, why should the Normans follow their duke on such a patently hazardous adventure? It's a good question. The penitential ordinance was an agreement between a nobleman and a duke that basically summed it up, uh, summed up military service to the duchy. Essentially, you will fight because you owe it to the duke. But here's the thing. According to Wace, it wasn't as simple as it sounds. It wasn't like William sent out a quick Twitter blast calling in all his men to bring gear, horses, and their own militias. These were individual negotiations between William and each nobleman, and varying agreements were reached, though William stood on one specific non-negotiable. William needed twice the amount of what they usually delivered to him. We're talking food, timber, manpower, money, all the things. And with each and every deal struck, William had to swear that these payments would not become the norm. In return, William was no fool. William was like a proto-tycoon of industry. He had everything put in writing and kept safe, just in case someone decided to renege on the agreement. A small portion of these records survived, and it's called plainly enough, the ship list and it shows the barons and the number of ships they promised to bring with them. Now, these agreements weren't just a measure to ensure maximum support for the war effort. No, this, this list was also a way for the barons to come back to the duke upon victory in order to receive their reward and compensation for service. 
so it was a twofold document. Many noblemen were only agreeing to 20, 30, or even 50 ships, but a few closest to William were expected to contribute far more than the regular baron. His half-brother Odo was required to give 100 ships, and his other half-brother Robert was required 120 ships. The bigger the risk, the bigger the reward. But even when he drew the levies from around the duchy, William must have noticed rather quickly that he was woefully short of what he needed. I mean, he's talking about invading arguably the most economically prosperous kingdom in Northern Europe, not to mention a battle-hardened people who have endured decades of warfare and strife already. William would need to call in some favors and even create a few debts from outside of his own domain if this invasion was going to succeed. He sent his brothers-in-arms, his lifelong friends and vassals, his core contingent of men since the days of hopping out of windows in the dark of night, escaping an assassin's blade. William Fitzosborne and Roger of Montgomery, his two closest, were sent outside Normandy to drum up support for his cause. King Harold learned of these envoys and sent spies to Normandy, as I said earlier, in early spring to begin a campaign of reconnaissance in order to get a jump on this incredibly dangerous enemy. Throughout the spring and early summer, as ships were continuously being built from scratch on the coast, the French regions of Aquitaine, Maine, Brittany, Poitou, Burgundy, and even surprisingly Boulogne, if you remember Boulogne was a French county whose leaders, Eustache II, was intimately associated with King Edward, and was happily used as a tool to pry the Godwins away from England 15 years back. Well, Count Eustace saw an opportunity, and now that his brother-in-law was no longer in charge, dead, <laughs> what did he owe to England anyway? Might as well take his chances and see if he might gain something in the venture. But in addition to these French regions, it's interesting to note two things. One, William called upon his brother-in-law, the powerful Count Baldwin V of Flanders, who then gave generously to the cause, not only in men, but in ships and money as well. And two, a call was put out to expatriate Normans, namely those living in Iberia fighting the Moors, and those living in southern, Italy's, southern Italy fighting, well, anyone who is looking for a fight. Thousands of southern and Iberian Normans as some later referred to them, came storming back for a piece of the English pie. It was, having been bolstered by these areas, how Normandy began to, to see a truly effective invasionary force begin to form. William was going for broke. If he lost, that means he was probably dead. So there was no way to compensate his soldiers if he died. And if he won, England was pretty large... You know, enough to dice it to shreds and give his pride of loyal lions a cut of the prize. It was a win-win for William at this point, except for one last glaring hole. Could he ensure that God, yeah, God, was on his side? And the answer was no. No, he couldn't. So in order to put his army at ease... He would need a papal banner, a message from the Pope that wasn't exactly necessary in battle, but it would certainly go a really long way to lessen the scorn he received from other Christian states and regions. 
If one Christian polity chose to attack another Christian polity, then the attackers would require proof that God approved of this action. And William received such permission from the Pope to invade England under his banner. And this is in no small part due to the dominant influence of someone we've already mentioned, a man named Lanfranc, as well as William's tireless work throughout the 1050s and early 1060s of sitting in on ecumenical councils, holding recurring meetings with his abbots, bishops, and archbishops, you know, to discuss the state of the Norman church, as well as the massive building projects within the duchy that sought to overthrow the old stereotype of Normandy being a place where Christian policies went to die. Leading up to 1066, it's safe to say that William had played his cards as right as they could have been played to that point. He had quelled unrest within his duchy, in the 1040s and 1050s, he had repeatedly shut down his biggest rival in the kingdom, Count Geoffrey Martel of Anjou. He had done the same to his king and come out the other side with an intact relationship. He had married into Flemish nobility, and in addition to building up the infrastructure and economic centers and ports of Normandy, he had done the same to mend relations with Rome to the point of gaining their support for his invasion of another Christian kingdom. So, from spring to late summer 1066, William set to gathering his new friendships along the coast of Normandy while building a fleet from the first board to the last. Meanwhile, back across the channel, King Harold Godwinson was watching the hairy-tailed portent of doom strafe the upper atmosphere when news came from southern England that Tostig Godwinson was leading raiding parties. Yeah, raiding parties. Not much is known about his whereabouts in recent months, but many seem to think that Harold's little brother had visited the court of his, the court of his brother-in-law in Flanders to drum up support for his triumphal return, just as his father had done 15 years earlier. The next thing we know is that Tostig went a-raiding England's southern coast, specifically here, the Isle of Wight, for starters. Soon after, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states that Tostig forced many sailors into his service from Sandwich. Harold set out immediately to defeat his brother before this whole thing got too far out of hand, but Tostig was either going for a little psychological game of cat and mouse, or he was simply testing the English along the Channel and the North Sea for any support of a return with a larger invasionary fleet. Either way, we know that Harold returned to London having learned of his brother casting off from Sandwich and the mixed support he'd received along the way through Wessex, as well as the news that the further north Tostig went, the more hostile the English became toward him. Now, by the time he arrived near Lincolnshire, along the River Humber in Northumbria, Edwin of Mercia and Morcar of Northumbria had fairly easily driven Tostig's meager forces away, the D Chronicle, according to Morris, says that Tostig, quote, sailed into the Humber with 60 ships, but left with only 12, end quote. Yeek. Morris continues, quote, no doubt to his immense frustration, Tostig had found that support for his several rivals, Harold, Edwin, and Morcar, was far stronger than anticipated, from the Humber, he sailed the remnant of his fleet further north and sought refuge with his sometimes adversary, King Malcolm of Scotland, end quote. 
Able to take a little breather after learning of Edwin and Morcar repelling Tostig towards Scotland, King Harold set his sights back to the real threat, Normandy. Harold's spies were reporting ships being built en masse, and William courting visitors from around France, which is not a good sign at the moment. So the best Harold could do was to fortify his coastal positions in the meantime. So that's what he did around the beginning of the summer, 1066. While levies gathered there, Harold himself made the Isle of Wight his temporary base of operations. Morris sums up this hurry-up-and-wait military mentality with, quote, Then he and the thousands of men spread out across England's south coast, did all they could do in such circumstances. They watched and they waited, end quote. While Tostig paced the rooms of King Malcolm of Scotland's homes, licking his wounds and berating God for his lack of divine support, Harold ignored Tostig to his north and busied himself with potentialities should an invasion come from the south. And while Harold stood on the Isle of Wight, staring across the channel, William was busy, busy making ships, busy solidifying relationships, and busy promising the spoils of war to those who promised him their service. For instance, near the site of William's dominating and landmark victory of 1047 over his in-Dutchy rivals, Duchess Matilda had funded the building of the Abbey of the Holy Trinity in Cain in 1059. By June of 1066, William and Matilda were giving their daughter, Cecilia, to the service of the nuns there as a way to gain further favor in the monks' and nuns' eyes, in turn granting William's upcoming invasion of England a bit more of a divine nudge in his direction. In addition to Holy Trinity, William also wrote a charter promising the elite and influential Abbey at Faycomp, vowing to give Steining in Sussex should he succeed. So much more will come out soon, as all the promises William would wheel and deal during this time, we know this because, well, we actually find out who gets what soon enough. And that's what this was. No one was fighting because they thought William's claims were somehow righteous or divinely inspired. No, they wanted something in return. They wanted a cut of England, a kingdom much coveted after. Orderic Vitalis calls them men who were, quote, panting for the spoils of England, end quote. Best estimates, northern, or excuse me, Norman armies amounted to about 7,000 soldiers and knights. However, the army at large could have numbered as high as 60,000, though a few people writing later threw out an outlandish figure of 150,000 knights and foot soldiers, which is just crazy to say the least. But even the figures of 50 to 60,000 that Orderic Vitalis and William of Poitiers give us though far more reasonable, just goes to show that this Norman invasion of England, either way you slice it, was far less Norman and far more mercenaries supporting a Norman duke who promised them something in return. As William of Poitiers put it, quote, four knights flocked to him in great number, attracted by the well-known liberality of the duke, but all fully confident of the justice of his cause, end quote. 
Needless to say, mercenaries knew a trustworthy and generous benefactor when they saw one, and they saw one in William. Now, Morris also references the work of Bernard Bachrock, who is known for his studies of the Norman Conquest, namely a paper he wrote about the economics of the invasion itself. According to Morris's take on the study, quote, Supposing the men subsisted only on grain, highly unlikely, of course, it would have required 14 tons a day to keep them fed, and similar amount to feed the estimated 2,000 horses. Between them, the men and their mounts would have also needed around 30,000 gallons of fresh water every day, and the horses, in addition, would have needed four to five tons of straw a day for their bedding. The resulting totals for a whole month are mammoth. Thousands of tons of food and water, all of which had to be transported to the encampment, either ferried down the deaves or carted along rutted roads. Equal forethought, of course, had to be given to sanitation. That many men and horses would have produced a mountain of manure and a river of urine. 2,000 tons and 700,000 gallons are Bachrock's respective figures for the horses alone. Lastly, of course, they all required shelter. Tents for the men, stalls for the horses. These, it bears repeating, are minimum requirements for keeping people alive for a month, more in keeping with a refugee camp than a volunteer army. To keep his men together and to maintain their morale, William would have had to, to have found many more items, meat, fish, wine, and ale, in similarly colossal quantities, end quote. I encourage you maybe to rewind that and just go back few, uh, back through there because, wow, those are some hard-to-believe numbers. But it really makes you think of all the cool little details our history textbooks were missing back in school, doesn't it? Not that learning about, <laughs> you know, mountains of manure and rivers of urine are particularly pleasant to talk about, but these kinds of details make the whole story come alive. These kinds of details are the ones that make all these historical events beyond merely timeline titles. These details make them stories. The Norman conquest of England wasn't just a Norman duke gathering his men, sailing across a 21-mile stretch of water, and killing the sitting king, thus taking over a kingdom. Hardly. The Norman conquest of England, along with numerous other timeline titles, were extremely complex stories. Stories that, when, when examined through multivariant analyses, indicates the economic, social, religious, and political stories all weaving together to make the tapestry of a very human story. And as we'll soon find out on the podcast, the Norman Conquest of England was far more than just a battle next to an apple tree. So how did William supply his soldiers and knights and laborers who supported the building of his fleet? Well, we don't really know, to be honest. There are a lot of educated guesses, many of them pretty accurate estimations, actually, but no one is 100% positive. We know that grain, ale, fresh water, straw, lumber, cloth, metal, these were all in extremely high demand in the spring and summer of 1066. Just knowing the nature of such undertakings, see the United States in World War II, for instance, it's pretty safe to say that the coastlines of Normandy, the beautiful, 
beautiful coastline whose beaches would see nothing but bloody waters and bodies strewn up and down the sands in just under 1900 years would be arguably for a very brief spark of time one of the most economically prosperous and arguably safest places in all of Europe. The jobs created to make the ships required foresters to fell the trees. The brewers were, would be busy brewing, the seamstresses busy sewing garments and sails, the farmers selling their stockpiles, and the businessmen wheeling and dealing their heart's content. And don't forget about the early trucking industry we mentioned on an earlier episode about a younger William. Those folks owned and rented out the cart horses to carry goods around France. At a cost, of course. And as far as safety went, William had established in no uncertain terms the order he demanded from all who sought to fight under his banner. William of Poitiers writes, quote, The crops waited unharmed for the scythe of the harvester, and were neither trampled by the proud stampede of horsemen, nor cut down by foragers. A man who was weak or unarmed could ride singing on his horse wherever he wished, without trembling at the sight of squadrons of knights. End quote. William told his men that there will be absolutely no looting or plundering anywhere inside the Duchy of Normandy. Hmm. King Harold, stationed on the Isle of Wight, was looking at the same cold, choppy waters as William was. Both men at some point during those long summer months must have stood staring across the strait right at each other, wondering when the weather would ease up enough for a crossing. But the records indicate that the weather simply wouldn't cooperate in the summer of 1066. As the summer crept on, fears in the, North, in the Norman camp began to rise. Fears that to Harold and his fellow Englishmen were actually the opposite. Relief and fear. They're interesting juxtapositions. Harold was hoping that the weather would continue the way it was, while William dreaded the weather patterns. Should the year stretch too long, William would lose his chance to attack before winter. Should it stretch too long, William would eventually run out of food and fresh water and all those resources and supplies that kept his army at the ready. Should the summer stretch too long, William would have one of two things happen. His men would need to begin plundering the surrounding Norman countryside and towns, or he would start to see those valuable foreign mercenaries trickle away, off to find other donors who were actually ready to wage a campaign. However, should it stretch too long, Harold could enjoy a fairly stress-free winter, knowing William's army would have disintegrated and the threat may be quelled for a few more years, which in the meantime he would have secured his kingdom's trust and loyalty, as well as done the good old Godwin thing and created a navy to meet the Norman Duke. That's just my opinion, of course, but I don't think it's unreasonable. But in truth, as the summer dragged on, news arrived that, to everyone's surprise, a giant fleet from Norway arrived in Yorkshire. It was led by King Harold Sigurdsson II and King Harold Godwinson's own brother, Tostig Godwinson. It seemed Tostig had been busy over the last couple of months making friends in high places, the highest of places if you consider the legend following old Hardrada. 
King Harold had a decision to make, and fast. The summer seemed to be just about up, with the weather misbehaving to England's benefit. So Harold disbanded his southern forces. It was understood that the threat was still imminent, but they could still return home to their families and their fields. Meanwhile, Harold drew upon his feard, rode north to London, picked up more levies, and continued on to the land that few English kings dared to enter, Northumbria. Harold's already proving himself, you know, a man of a new age, because this would be his second or third or, gosh, maybe even his fourth time entering Northumbria as either a king or an earl, which is a testament to his overall level of acceptance throughout his life. Either way, north he rode with a growing contingent of men that by the time he reached the edges of Yorkshire, he'd amassed a force in the thousands, and by that time he'd already heard of death and destruction at the hands of the legend Hardrada and his brother Tostig. One battle had already been waged in the king's rush northward, a battle that saw earls Edwin and Morcar handily defeated. So King Harold spent the first day or two assessing the situation as he approached and planning his next few moves. Meanwhile, he was hearing back from forward observers, who were essentially men sent ahead to talk to residents and report back anything of note to the king. And he decided that a perfect opportunity based on the news presented itself just several miles down the road near a place called Stamford Bridge. And in England's deep south, along the channel coasts of Wessex, the myriad town and port villages began to breathe again without the influx of soldiers who had been released by the king to return home a week or two earlier. When levies occupied a town or village, the pace of life accelerated and everything just became unpredictable, as you can imagine. But with their absence, life returned to its predictable, comfortable, unassuming flow. Women went about gathering resources for the continuing prosperity of the home, as well as tending to the sometimes very unenviable task of raising some decent human beings. While the men did the same, only they did it in the fields farming, in the woods and hills hunting, or on the waves harvesting the English Channel's difficult-to-harvest bounty. And it was there, on those same channel waves, that English sailors noticed a subtle change. It was one day almost imperceptible, and the next, it changed their daily habits. It was late September, a time when, if the channel weather hadn't calmed by then, it was surely bound to calm any day. And they noticed the waves a bit less rough. They noticed the sky a bit clearer and more predictable. They smiled as they thought of the next few weeks being a time of plenty, a time when sailing a bit further into the channel wouldn't be as hazardous as it was for the previous several weeks, a time when they can harvest the pockets of uh, pockets a few extra miles away from shore, where the fish tended to be more plentiful. Yes, this change was noticed, and it was, as it had been for centuries, capitalized upon. And the villages and towns would prosper from the trade that developed during this time along the southern coasts in late September of 1066. And with the calming of the waters came something else. Something else entirely different 
than what they counted on. I hope you enjoyed today's episode about the calm before the storm. Please keep sharing the show on your favorite podcasting service, and please don't forget to contact the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com with topic suggestions, questions, concerns, and even corrections. The link to the new website is up and running, so head over there for updated episodes and blogs and news too. Also, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or Anchor, or even just heading over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star review. Next week, the Norman Conquest at long last, officially begins. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by how they spend their time, and I want to thank you for spending your time learning about our shared past here on Fortune's Wheel Podcast. Until next time.